0: as Nathan had mentioned, I feel like I, I would normally just kind of get up here and start into my sermon, but um, the nature of the sermon has to to do with paying or taking care of your pastor. And so I think it's necessary for me to let you know as we get into this. And if you're visiting with us today, you're not thinking, what in the world's going on at that church? <laughs> are they not paying their pastor? What is, what is happening? But uh, no, they are. We are just working through, systematically through the book of First Timothy, and we are at these verses today. 156 Clemson-class destroyers were commissioned by the United States Navy from 1919 to 1922. They had two less boilers than their predecessors, their predecessors, the weakest class, which made room for a larger fuel cat capacity and more space for anti-submarine depth charges. One of these class-class destroyers named the USS Pruitt was first launched on September 2, 1920 from Bath, Maine. The Pruitt served during what is the interwar period between the two world wars. It operated in the western Pacific, protecting American interests in the Far East, and ultimately it earned three battleships. The Navy decommissioned the Pruitt on the 16th of November 1945, and the destroyer was later scrapped at the Philadelphia Naval Yard. To date, no other ship has been named the USS Pruitt. However, unless we forget its name, it is appropriate for us to ask, where did this destroyer get its designation? The answer, from a 22-year-old Marine corporal by the name of John Henry Pruitt. Pruitt entered military service at Phoenix, Arizona, in May of 1917. On October 3rd of 1918, at the Battle of blanc mont Ridge in France, John Henry Pruitt attacked and captured two enemy machine guns and hours later captured 40 enemy soldiers. This battle went on for 24 days and ended with the expulsion of the Imperial German Army from the Champagne region of France. However, the battle only lasted a little over a day for Corporal Pruitt. The next day, October 4, 1918, on his 22nd birthday, he returned to action only to be killed by shellfire and later have his remains buried at Arlington National Cemetery. Pruitt would become one of 19 soldiers to receive two Medals of Honor for his act of valor. The Medal of Honor is the U.S.'s highest and most prestigious military decoration, and Pruitt's act of valiancy was so spectacular spectacular that he received the Medal of Honor from the U.S. Army and another from the Navy. Both read nearly identical, but the following is the Army citation. Quote, Pruitt single-handedly attacked two machine guns, capturing them and killing two of the enemy. He then captured 40 prisoners in a dugout nearby. This gallant Marine was killed soon afterward by shellfire while he was sniping at the enemy, end quote. Friends, John Henry Pruitt was worthy of double honor. He was enlisted as a servant of the United States Marine Corps and understood that his life was not his own. He valiantly served and died. Pruitt was financially compensated for his dedicated work as a soldier and in the end received what was due to him, that is double honor. Was well, I've already said we've been working our way through 1 Timothy for some months now. We know that Timothy, Timothy is somewhat of a soldier inside of a battle that is going on in a very important church in Ephesus. He is an apostolic adversary sent to the church at Ephesus to instruct certain men not to teach false doctrines which Always lead people away. Those false doctrines include or included people rather than all men, including leaders whom Christ died for. These teachings likely included having women and unqualified men. Lead the corporate worship service. Additionally, the false teachers were teaching doctrines of demons and deceitful spirits that we learned of in chapter 4, which taught some form of legalism in the church. But specifically, it was telling people not to, not to marry and to abstain from certain kinds of food. Items in the, ...was to expect Paul to return, but until he did, he was to prescribe the items in this letter, so that we, so that that church would know how to conduct themselves in the household of God. We have turned to 1 Timothy and we would to do the same to 2 Timothy and Titus to get instructions for the church. And it has been our our joy to go through that and begin to learn and maybe even press on some of our cultural understandings of such things. Starting in chapter 5, we began to see that the church family matters. Timothy was to deal with the church as a family. He was to, if you remember, rebuke uh, older, younger men and women with gentleness, with kindness, like a father, like a mother, like like, uh, appealing to a brother or a sister. He was also to instruct the church to materialize compensate, as we learned last week, qualified widows who would not be supported by or could not be supported by any other means. He was told to do that so that the church would not be burdened. Beloved, keeping with the concept of family matters in taking care of those in the church who are worthy, we will see that today the elders who rule well are worthy of double honor. So let's dig into the text. It starts like this. You have it in front of you there. 1 Timothy 5, verses 17 and 18. It starts with the elders who rule well. It's important to just take a moment and, and distinguish what is being said here, the elders who rule well is not trying to tell us that there are some elders who are not doing a good job and some elders who are doing a good job. The context of 1 Timothy is there were elders and teachers uh, that were false teachers that had become elders in the church and they were being cast out. We saw that in chapter 1 verses uh, 20 and 21 or 19 to 20. So the idea here is not that Some elders can do a good job and other elders can do a bad job. And then we're going to distinguish between those who do a good job. The idea is there are only one kind of elder, qualified elders, those that are doing well. So those who rule well... Were set in opposition to those elders who were not ruling well in Ephesus. Therefore, the elders who were not ruling well needed to be cast out. And we saw that in chapter 1. And they were turned over, Hymenaeus and Alexander, to Satan. Remember, Paul had warned the Ephesian church of elders, uh, the Ephesian elders specifically of wolves, not sparing the flock at his meeting at Miletus, just a, a, a small port town just south of Ephesus. He said this in Acts chapter 20, verses 29 through 30, speaking to these elders at Ephesus I know that after my departure, savage wolves might come in. (laughs) No, they will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, that is, the elders, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. And that is precisely what Hymenaeus and Alexander had done. They had snuck in. They were elders at the church. They were drawing many. They, uh, the, the, the word of God there in Ephesians 1 would say they were shipwrecking people's faith. They were bad elders. They should have never been elders and they were exiled out of the flock. The church at Ephesus was in deep trouble from wolves in sheep's clothing. And Timothy, like he was sent to many other I think we often, he gets a bad rap for being uh, maybe a little bit lighthearted or timid. And there may be a little bit of that in Timothy. But I I would argue that if I were in those very similar situations, um, we would see Timothy as a pretty bold young man. He is sent to multiple churches that are having multiple problems multiple times, and Ephesus will be the last one he serves in, church history tells us, nearly 30 years. So the church was in trouble at Ephesus, from wolves and sheep's clothing. Paul, writing his final words to the church at Rome, almost oddly, you get into chapter 16, and, and it's really just... Uh, this this wonderful chapter of blessings, right, and acknowledgments, and all these people, but right in the midst of it is this warning in Romans chapter 16, verses 17 and 18 concerning wolves. Verse seven says, I should have it up here on the board for you. Now, I urge you. Now, it would have been just okay for Paul to, to have said just now. It would have got our attention, right? Now, it's a way. The speaker would use to, to have you to pay attention. And he could just say, he could have just said, now, brethren, keep your eye on those. But he does not. He, he, he uses this, this verb, right? This, this word, I urge you, brethren. Now, I urge you, brethren. Here comes the warning keep your eye on those. The ESV says, watch out for those. The New King James says, note those. And the King James says, Mark them or mark those which cause what? Divisions and offenses. Contrary to the teaching which you learned and turn away from them. This is something, unfortunately, the church is constantly doing, constantly having to watch, constantly, right? The attacks come from the outside. They come from the inside, and like any sneaky attack in a battle, right, they, nobody shows up with a devil hat on and a pitchfork in their hand, right? They show up with a smile. They show up with a Bible in their hand. They, 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 they look just like everybody else. They even kind of sound sometimes maybe even a little bit better. They got their act together. They got their theology down. But one thing always identifies them. They begin to pull people out. They begin to separate them from the flock. They begin to share their ideas and pretty soon people are upset or or uncomfortable and not quite sure what is going on. This is the warning. This is what happens. They are, uh, these men are, we, we see there in the text in verse 17, we are to turn away from them. To turn away is a present active imperative in the Greek and it can be translated, avoid them or keep away from them. And you might say, "Ah, oh, man, pastor, how do, you, how do you know who the them are? Well, if they're pulling you out, if they're saying different things and that which is being said in the church service, if they are disgruntled about the way things are going, they don't like the music, they don't like the teaching, they don't like the pastor, it's okay, nobody likes me. Well, my wife does. I'm kind of used to that. But listen, if there's disgruntledness, right, and, and, and I've seen it time and time again, below, where somebody pulls somebody off to the side and, and just that in itself should be in your conscience. You should, be, you should know something's odd here. They, they don't want other people to hear. They, they need to get your attention, right? Come over to my home or, or come over to this corner and let's talk. I've seen it over and over and over in the body of Christ. The word of God warns, mark them and turn away from them, avoid them, keep away from them. Why? Verse 18, for such men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites. Now, the word of God is not talking about that they're hungry people, right? (laughs) They're not just hungry, headed off to McDonald's uh, for lunch, right? The idea is driven by their flesh, they're driven by the things they desire, they are they're driven by the wants, the I must have to do's rather than why do we do the things we do they're men that are slaves to their appetites and by their smooth and flattering speech they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting these are the type of men who are not qualified, they are not ruling well They are divisive, and the Word of God would warn us to turn away from them. Notice, with their flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. Let's pause for just a moment on that. The unsuspecting, right? This gives us this idea, they look just like you and me. We're unsuspecting of them, right? That somehow we've been blinded to that which they do, and it's easy to get sucked into that type of thing. We want to believe uh, that they have God's church and in mind, so we tend to get sucked into appearances. We get led astray. It happens to all of us. Remember, with me will you that even Judas spent three and a half, nearly three and a half years with the Lord and the disciples. In the end, they, they were sitting together and Jesus has made it clear that one of you, right, these 12, one of you is going to betray me and each one of them, not even trusting their own heart, is it, is it me, Lord? Is it me? Is it me? Is it me? Right? And yet Judas knew it was him. He had already made plans. He had already taken the money to turn over Jesus, but they did not know. They were unsuspecting that it was Judas. Beloved Timothy had quite a challenge in front of him. Just as there are today, those with smooth and flattering speech styles, trying to, as Acts twenty verse thirty says, draw away the disciples after them. Warn, uh, we we need to be warned by this, beloved. That is. What wolves, right? They do. They're predators. They separate the flock. We need to be warned. We need to hear what the Word of God says. We need to expect also, right? If you're going to be in a church and you're going to plan on being there for very long, you better expect that those types of things come up. They come up fairly often, both within and on the outside. So the elders who rule well, back to 1 Timothy 5, verse 17, is not a general statement about how well elders rule, but rather the statement is set in the context of unruly elders or leaders who needed to be weeded out through the lens of 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7. We often go to those texts when we're considering a pastor, something like that, an elder in the church, but in the context, the, the idea is that there are unruly elders, there are people needing to be kicked out of the leadership of the church, and the idea is, if they don't fit this prescription, right here in 1 Timothy 3, 1-7, then they should not be an elder. An overseer must be approached, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, we talked about meaning stranger-loving, able to teach, and teach well, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He, was, he must be one who managed his own household well. He was not to be a new convert. And remember, we talked about the fact that, that uh, he can't even hide inside his home or outside, that, that in both places there must be above reproach. That's a pretty hard list of things to make your way through you want to hear more detail of that, we covered that a, probably a month or so ago, right? I don't know what's happened with this speaker, but I'm going to attempt to fix it by allowing you to look at my pink shirt. <laughs> my guess is that's not going to fix it, but just in case... <laughs> just in case that's distracting you as much as it's distracting me. So the elder had this set of, of qualifications over his life at Ephesus, and we certainly look to those things today to make sure that before somebody ends up on, on the team of elders, that they are qualified to do so. Beloved, is this kind of elders, biblical elders, who are, as the rest of verse 17 says, to be considered worthy. And worthiness demands a process, does it not? A process of evaluation. We talked about that evaluation there in 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7. Recently, my wife Valerie has gone through a process of applying a new job. And so even the world understands these things. She sent in an application, and based on that application, the employer thought she might be worthy, right? So if you're an employer and you've ever done this, you know the next step. She was invited for an interview, and based on that interview, the employer thought, wow, this this gal might be worthy, so she received an invitation for the second interview. And based on that interview, her, her employer thought, wow, this gal is probably worthy. So they call her references and talk to her old bosses, and that's always a little bit scary, right? And they get done with all of those things, and they ultimately say through this process that we think this person is worthy. And... The employer made her an offer. Amen? That just happened. Friends, the idea of worthiness indicates deserving. And deserving implies that there has been a process of evaluation. There were undeserving professed elders. That is, they were not elders at all. They were just professing their eldership at the church in Ephesus. And the Spirit of God is making clear in this inspired letter that those who are worthy, will only be in the eldership. Therefore, the elders who rule well are all of the elders at the church and they are to be considered worthy. That verb, to be considered worthy, one Greek scholar, John Kitchen, said this, it is in the passive voice and and it indicates that it is not the elders themselves who are calculating the worthiness but those outside them, perhaps either a larger body of elders or the congregation itself. In the bylaws here at First Baptist Church that we just signed in last year as we have begun this really church revitalization, church plant that we are in, we made provision for a team of elders who will be called the finance team. Those men will one day inform the entire elder team as to their research and prayerful recommendation concerning the appropriate pay and hiring of staff members at the church. They will be the ones who are considering whether somebody is worthy. And worthy of what is double honor. We determined last week that the Spirit's intention for the Greek word Timae, which is translated honor up there in chapter 5, verse 3, as it pertained to widows indeed within the church, is to it means twofold, two things. It both means to respect, as is found in 1 Timothy 6:1. We see down there that those who were slaves were called to respect their masters. And that is how the word or honor their masters is being used in one sense. And it also meant to remunerate the qualified. The widow indeed was from verse 3. It meant to pay her. That was the whole idea. In other words, the widow indeed was to receive payment if she was above reproach, right? And there was no family to take care of her. She was to be both respected in her godly lifestyle and she was to be remunerated. She was to be taken care of by the body. Teme or honor in our text this week and last is also translated in reference to payments throughout the New Testament. In Matthew chapter 27, verse 6, after Judas betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, Matthew recorded this, the chief priests took the pieces of silver and said, it is not lawful for, for lawful, to put them into the temple treasury, since it is the Timae, that's the word there, the price of blood. So we see Timae not only being in this sense of respect or honor from 1 Timothy 6, we see it used as price, the price of blood. Again, in Acts chapter 4, verse 34, we see Timae used as a reference to money. It says, for there was not a needy person, this is speaking of the very, very early church right after Pentecost, for there was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the, is timai, that is the proceeds, right? The, the income, the finances of the sales. Friends, when John Henry Pruitt enlisted in the Marine Corps, he signed a document essentially stating that his life was not his own. If you have served in the military, as I have, and I know there are many others in this room who either are or have, you essentially say, my life is not my own. In a very many ways, that is much like the Christian life. It is not presented that way, that well in America anymore. It's just kind of like, come and get a little Jesus, and, and we love the grace side of that, but we forget to count the cost, And the cost was take up your cross and walk up that hill and die daily as the Apostle Paul said he did. He was dying to those appetites of which he is here, accusing the false uh, teachers, just being led along by their appetites, right? He's dying daily to those things, putting Christ first. John Henry Pruitt understood when he enlisted in the Corps, he gave up his life and he paid the price, the timae, to free others from tyranny. Paul, encouraging the church to flee immoral practices, said as much about the Christian life in 1 Corinthians six nineteen and 20. In the middle of questioning them, he asked, You are not your own, verse 20, for you have bought with a, you have been bought with a, here is the word, Time. You have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. There's our word. It's Time. It means both to honor and an honorarium, something we might take up for somebody who comes to, to speak or somebody in need you're in here today and you have never come to the end of yourself and you've never seen your sinful condition before God who has promised to judge every sinner who is without the only acceptable payment, then I beg you to accept God's teme. The price, the proceeds will be eternal life. Amen. principle of honored or to may or monetary proceeds for the hard work of many shows up ministry shows up all throughout the new and old testaments it doesn't take much looking or understanding the as the law is being set up that the priests of the old testament were to be set aside they were to receive portions of the grain they were to receive portions of the of the meat from the sacrifices and that fed their families They were to be taken care of because their life was completely and solely dedicated to handling the law of God. The Apostle Paul would praise the church at Philippi saying this in Philippians chapter 4 verse 18, but I have received everything in full. Remember here the context, would you? Paul is in prison in Philippi. And it's the kind of prison, right, it's not like the prisons of today where somehow out of the tax system, right, that, this, that, that you would get food or be taken care of, right? If you didn't have friends and a support system, you're probably just going to die of hunger or starvation. And so Paul is writing the Philippian church because they have sent Epaphroditus with this major gift, right, of finances, food, and provision for him. And that's the context here in chapter 4:18. But I have received everything in full, telling them, right? I got it, <laughs> right? It's not like they sent it; uh, 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 some kind of registered mail, right? This would take months for, for uh, Epaphroditus to have come with this gift, and then months probably, or even days, at least, for them to hear back. I have received everything in full and have in abundance. I am amply supplied. Having received from Aphrodite, what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. Friends, inasmuch as the church at Philippi, Timade, they honored Paul. The Corinthian church seemed to balk at the idea of paying Paul and Barnabas. This brought on the embarrassing rebukes given to the church both in 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 14, 14, where Paul challenged them concerning receiving pay. In 2 Corinthians 11.8, when he told them this, I robbed other churches by taking wages from them to serve you. The idea of timae, the idea of honoring, the idea of taking care of those who are serving is deep within the text all the way back into the Old Testament and now into the New. So it is that honor is both a reference to respect and making payment to those qualified elders who were serving the church at Ephesus. The word double there is not necessarily some kind of reference. There's a lot of ink spilled around the idea of double honor. But it is not necessarily a reference of, of just look back to what the widows got paid, double that, and, and we kind of get that in the text as we're reading quickly through that. As The idea is not that it is Doubled, it is that it is very much, right? The position is very much to be honored. Just this last week, Nathan and I were, were talking about what has changed about the honor of the pastoral role. And he looks back, I, I did not grow up, I was not born again until my mid-20s um, from a, an accident that I had in, uh, in the Army, But I had no church background, and so I was kind of leaning on, trying to understand a little bit better what Nathan, what had happened in our culture, what had happened, where the respect of the pastor began to kind of die away or pass away. And he tied it back to the events of uh, the bakers who um, who had fallen into gross immorality, and that was very much televised because they were very much a televised church couple. And so this sin, right, that maybe would have been somewhat quiet in years before where television wasn't available, social media of today, spread throughout and caused a lot of distrust in the communities for believers and especially those who are leading. The idea of double honor here is that it is worthy. It is worthy and doubly worthy to honor like John Pruitt the elders who rule well are to be very much respected and very much taken care of notice the next especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching especially uh, should probably be translated namely Therefore, we could render the text like this, and you could translate it this way from the Greek. The elders who rule well, namely, are those who work hard at preaching and teaching. Beloved, every elder is to be able to preach and teach. I want to pause there for just a moment. The elders are not uh, just good businessmen or wise people who should give counsel, right? They should be preaching and teaching. And, And although we have... Uh, We have paused our 9 a.m. discipleship classes. If you go to those classes, it will be taught by an elder or somebody who is prospectively going to be an elder in the church. Each elder is to be able to preach and teach. That is part of their qualification. However, not every elder will work hard. It may not be the very thing that he focuses on week in and week out. The verb to work hard catch this, literally means to labor to the point of exhaustion. To labor to the point of exhaustion. They are working at this one specific thing to make sure that when they get up here and they stand behind the pulpit, they are not giving you their opinion. They should be working hard to tell you exactly what God has said. It's not a place for entertainment, although it can be entertaining. My pink shirt and that coat, right? We're causing a problem, apparently. I haven't heard the problem since. So that could be entertaining, right? But that is not my role to come up and to entertain. It is to come up and speak about the hard things that show up in the text as we move through it and to work out the problems, the issues. There's probably 25, 30 pages that I, that I read in Greek in very technical commentaries about double honor, right? I'm going to share one sentence with you about that. But that sentence will be fit and tied together so that I am confident that what I have said to you is what God has said. That is the work. Notice the next clause. Especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. Consider this for a moment with me, will you? Peter instructs those gifted and called to pastor, and he tells them, This in 1 Peter 5, verses 2 and 3. He says, shepherd the flock of God among you. Here's the idea, right? Implying that pastor is to be among the congregation. The pastor is to be with them. The pastor is not some kind of celebrity figure that just kind of gets whisked off the stage after uh, one hour on the morning. My brother, who I love to death, he's not a believer, but he often says this of me and the position that I'm in today. He's like, how hard can it be? You only work an hour a week. Just get up, say a few things, (laughs) and go home and eat, right? There's a lot of amongness, right, in pastoring. There are sicknesses. There are deaths. There are weddings. there There are births. There are issues. There are wolves coming from the outside. There are wolves raised up from the inside. This is a non-stop work shepherding the body of Christ. It reminds me much of, of my, my teenage years when I worked on a ranch, right? It's kind of like ranching. It's never really over. <laughs> right? You just decide to finally go to bed. There's just a little more offense to fix. There's just another calf who's sick. And you get to that tomorrow. It's hard work. He says, shepherd the flock of God among you. The shepherd then is to be exercising, that is practicing and using leadership skills for oversight. And notice, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, meaning he does not have to be asked to do everything. This is one of my concerns. When I, oftentimes I, I see young men coming out of seminary The idea is I'm going to go get a job and I'm going to clock into that job and then when the hours get met, I'm just going to clock out of that job. And they justify it with, well, I've got to take care of my family and I've got to do all those other things and amen and amen. We need to do that. But the attitude is not this, how do we lock arms and how do we work hard, labor to the point of exhaustion? When we come to the end of our lives, uh, we can without a doubt say that we have done all we can to serve the Lord. He is not to be under compulsion, the elder. It should just be able to look out. When we think of 1 Timothy 3 and we see the the qualifications of the the deacons, we, we see that it says, let them first be tested also. The idea is that the elder is being tested and I certainly do that whether you know it or not. I'm always watching who shows up Who doesn't show up? Who has to be asked to show up? If that person who has to be asked to show up all the time and and told exactly what they do, then they show up and they say, Well, I'd like to be an elder, I I automatically know. No, something's off. (laughs) Something's off. Should not be under compulsion. There should be a heart, a passion, a drive to want to serve people, love people, show up and get in people's lives, tell them what the word of God says, and see them follow after him, amen? He is to do the work voluntarily, it says. He does not have to be asked to do everything, and this is according to the will of God. Again, he is not to to be the type of man who just does his job for sort of gain. He just wants to make money. This idea is, is just like not under compulsion. It is a pastor who is more concerned about earning a paycheck than taking care of people. And notice that he is to exercise these things with eagerness and not as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. I love that text. We always run to 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 to, to see the qualifications of elders. We always do it, right? And we should. But as much as those are the qualifications for the elder, 1 Peter uh, here is just this tremendous example of, of what all of those qualifications should look like. A man who is not lording it over, a man who is among the people, a man who loves the people, a man who doesn't have to ask, be asked to do everything for the body. Who deeply loves people, Amen. I love it. We can also learn this from verse 17 that there are elders who will be able to, uh, who are going to be able to teach, but it may not be their primary role on the Lord's day. So we have a plural. We hope to have a plurality of elders here. In about a month, we'll we'll vote for Nathan Winters and Paul Grant's, and they will be the second and third elders of our church. I hope that you have spent time getting to know them. It may, they may not, right, be on staff here, but they would certainly be serving. Would they be worthy of, of receiving something for their teaching? I think so. Where I'm gone. Weekly and every day. It may be the times when they come and they fill the pulpit. Where I'm gone. But it may not be their every Sunday thing. Those are all things that we'll have to Consider. Essentially, the church must consider which qualified elders they should compensate for their time, and that's what's being said here. Not just because they are qualified, but rather because of their willingness, their demeanor towards the flock, their example, their ability to teach the body and preach the gospel. This is why a church often goes through, right, an ordination process. When I first came here, there wasn't a lot of folks left, about 20 people a year and a half, two years ago, 20 to 30 And I candidated and that church came together and they they decided whether or not uh, that I would be qualified, whether I was going to be worthy to be here. Now let me make this point. I understand that happens. It happens in many churches, but I don't think that's how it ought to happen. I think the biblical example is that the elders are always raising up the next generation of elders, always bringing up, and Paul will say this in his second letter to Timothy, train up faithful men who will be able to train up others also. There's no seminaries. There's no Bible schools. It is the church's role to train up men. But we go through an ordination process to decide who is worthy to receive double honor. Amen? Well, if there's any question in your mind as to whether or not the Spirit's use of the word A. Or honor carries with it the idea of payment. The Holy Spirit is about to make it abundantly clear. Verse 18 says, For the Scripture says, You shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. Now, I'm having to fight back a smile, right? Because the Word of God just called me an ox. (laughs) Right? And I kind of smiled, and Nathan said that a little bit earlier, and then when he read it, I almost laughed, and, But we can get the idea here. Paul wanted to make sure that people did not just think it was his opinion that those who did the hard work of teaching and preaching required double honor. In doing so, he quotes two scriptures, one from the Old Testament, and very interestingly, we won't get into it too much today, one from the New. It's not too often we see that. The New Testament is developing, right? There's not a lot of reference. To the other letters. Peter will reference the writings of Paul and how sometimes they're a little difficult to understand, but he calls them scripture. The Old Testament reference, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, is found in Deuteronomy 25, verse 4. It is buried amongst a list of general laws for the newly would be nation of Israel. The law was quite simple, right? This is not difficult to understand. The ox is used as the metaphor for the hard-working pastor. And the ox, like the pastor, is doing uh, that work so that the rest of God's people could be fed. He was not to have a muzzle put on to refrain him from eating as he worked. So too was the elder who ruled well by working tirelessly. The church would allow that pastor to be able to be fed From that work. Paul made these statements to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 9 verses 7 and 9. Have you ever heard this said? (laughs) I'm on a rabbit trail. Hopefully I'll get back on the normal one. But it's often said and if you study the life of Paul and you certainly listen to the things he says that you may have liked him but you might not have loved him. There's a lot of rhetoric in the Apostle Paul's language, especially if he is after correction. And 1 Corinthians is chocked full of negative rhetoric, pushing, asking rhetorical questions, giving the answer by asking a question. And that is what he is doing here. Who plants a vineyard and does not eat the fruit of it? Or who tends a flock and does not use the milk of the flock? The answer is no one. I'm not speaking these things according to human judgment, am I? Or does that, or does not the law also say these things? Yes, it does, right? And there he quotes it, verse 9. For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. Beloved, it is clear that family matters for those elders who worked hard or work hard to the point of exhaustion in preaching and teaching the word of God the church must pay them double honor speaking of doubling down Paul quotes Jesus who made the same assertion when Jesus was sending out his disciples to teach and preach the good news of the kingdom of God he's coming to the toward the end of his ministry there he's definitely in that last six months and he knows he's not going to get to all these places and so you will remember that he anoints and he empowers these people to go out and begin to preach the good news of the kingdom of God and he gives them these instructions in Luke chapter 10 verses 5 through 7 which is where the quote is pulled from here in first Timothy 5 he says whenever or whatever house you enter first say peace be to this house if a man of peace is there your peace will rest on him but if not it will return to you. Stay in that house, eating and drinking what they give you. Here comes a quote. For the laborer is worthy of his wages. Notice that the apostle is calling this quote from Luke. Try to put that together in your mind. Luke has already been written at the point of 1 Timothy uh, it's very clear now from this text, right? Paul is, is, is pulling from, from that text, and he is calling it Scripture. He is leaning in on, don't, if you don't believe me as an apostle sent from the Lord Jesus Christ, believe what the Scripture says. One, don't muzzle the ox. Two, Jesus said in Luke, a laborer is worthy Of his wages. In 2 Peter 1 20 and 21, the Apostle Peter said this of the origins of scriptures. But know this first of all that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but by men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. But men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So it is, the Spirit of God spoke through Moses, the Old Testament prophet, concerning the principle of taking care of those who worked hard. Jesus affirmed that principle in Luke 10. And here in 1 Timothy 5, the apostle establishes for the church that those elders who rule well by working tirelessly and teaching and preaching are worthy of double honor. Beloved, when the apostle Paul was rebuking the Corinthian church, in 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 14, They were undervaluing his apostleship and he even purposed in his life to not earn a wage from them because there was clearly some kind of issue going on with an accusation towards Paul and his apostleship. He asked this question of the church in 1 Corinthians 9-7, who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? The answer is clear. No one. We would not want closet soldiers, would we? We would not want armchair quarterbacks defending our, core, our, our country. We go to sleep at night knowing that, that we have set aside money and we pay out of our, each one of us, out of our federal income taxes, this opportunity, right, to have an army and a navy and an air force and a marine corps and a coast guard that are guarding us. We don't want them to go off and have to flip burgers at McDonald's at night so they can go and do their job. And that is the idea that is going on here. Paul is saying who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense. He's got to make his own meal. He's got to figure out what's going to happen if somebody shoots him. He dies or gets hurt or sick. The answer is no. Corporal Pruitt chose to enlist with the Marine Corps he was trained to be a soldier, and for doing so, he was, he was paid a salary. He had uh, health care, and if he had made it through his time in service, he certainly would have had a retirement. Honor was due to him, both in respect and payment for his service. He proved to be more than just a hireling. He proved to be a man who worked hard at being a soldier and proved it by example. In short, beloved, he proved that he was worthy of double honor it may have been that John Henry Pruitt before he was enlisted and maybe just a couple centuries earlier just based on his character would have likely sacrificed everything to do the opposite of what Paul just said and join some kind of and fought for the freedom of our country and done it without pay there are many pastors who serve in this way Like Paul, who worked and preached, they are bivocational. They work so, they basically work, right, so that they can serve the church. Every situation demands its own considerations, but when the church is able, they should take care of their pastors. They should doubly honor them. Beloved, keeping with the concept of family matters and taking care of those in the church who are worthy. We can see that the elders who rule well by working hard at teaching and preaching are to be considered worthy of that double honor, amen? Let's pray. Father, uh, I thank you for this church. I thank you, Lord, for all that you have done just in the last couple of years and beginning to build this body back up. I thank you, Lord, for your word that instructs us and helps us as we have been uh, strategically working through Timothy so that as a new church we have a better idea of that which we are called to as a church. Lord, I pray that if we have had an attitude of of anything that does not line up with that which you have said in your word today about our elders and our pastors, Lord, would you convict us? And Lord, more than that, Would you give us the grace to repent and honor those, Lord, who serve us, our pastors? Lord, we know that they cannot do it on their own, that it takes your spirit and your strength. We pray, God, I pray for protection for those pastors who are serving, even interim pastors, Steve Melcher, Nathan Winters, Paul Grants, Lord, and myself. You would help us to keep an eye out for wolves that we would handle them with graciousness but sternness. that We might protect your body. Lord, give us, the, give us the drive and the passion to stay connected to your word that we might teach your people what you have said. We'll give you all the glory, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.